and welcome to the Canucks Hour. I'm Thomas Drans. This is our final show before our summer hiatus. We are going to slumber here for a bit. In anticipation of another Canucks season, cool our jets, recover a little bit. Jamie, of course, not joining us for the final show of the year in the COVID protocol. I obviously ended up in the COVID protocol last week, sign of the times. So after staying healthy throughout the year, we're, we're going out on a incomplete note. But that's that's okay. We'll have most of August off. We'll be back before training camp, before pro- the prospect, the Penticton Young Stars tournament. Uh, and we'll be ready to go, covering another Canucks season next year. We can't wait for it. We've had so much fun talking to you all throughout the year, and it's been such a dramatic season of Canucks hockey. You know, one of the very first episodes we did happened in Chicago. I was in Chicago, and it was right after the Canucks had gotten plastered by the Buffalo Sabres in in a Tage Thompson breakout game. A game that presaged what was to come from Tage Thompson, 35 goal scorer, one of the most surprising developments last year. And I come on and join Jamie that day and I remember our conversation was about the return of fans, right? Because at that juncture, fans hadn't been in Rogers Arena in you know, since March 11th of 2020. So it had been 18 months since fans had watched this team play. And, you know, to think that we started the show before fans even returned to the arena. And now we're, we're sort of signing off on our first year, 10 months later, a lot has happened, right? A lot has happened. Um, one of the first things we discussed in that show, one of, one of the big takes was, the idea that with fans returning came a new level of accountability, the return of accountability, uh, the return of a fan reaction to this team's woes, which didn't exist during the 2021 season. And to some extent, I still believe contributed to the club not making changes at the end of the year. When you don't have the voices in the arena, the consumers to keep happy, it was easy for the club to double down on a group that you know, had struggled mightily, particularly because some of the team's struggles in 2021, as everyone in the organization knew, were related to budget cuts, were related to decisions made above the hockey ops level. So this season, though, really, and especially that those first two months, were really characterized by the level of fan discontent and then the changes that resulted. Bruce Boudreaux came in, the vibes got oh so very good, oh so very fast. The te- team was phenomenal over the latter 60 games of the year. And new management, I think, presented themselves and discussed topics around the team in a way that rebuilt confidence in this market significantly. At the deadline, the club was expected to maybe be a little busier than they were, but they shed some salary with the Travis Hamannick trade that looked like manna from heaven. (laughs) They brought in Travis Dermott relatively inexpensively, and they made the trade they had to trading Tyler Mott for a mid-round pick from the New York Rangers in 2023. That was a departure from the way that this club had allowed unrestricted free agent after unrestricted free agent to leave unmonetized over the years, right? That that had become a really significant value sinkhole for the club. And I mean, you go down the list of players and it's really unfortunate how many players have left in unrestricted free agency with the club getting absolutely nothing for it and obviously not having won 
uh, you know, more than a single round in the playoffs since 20, um, 2011 um, sort of compounds that matter, right? To, to have only won one round in the playoffs since in 11 years. And yet the players that have departed in unrestricted free agency, whether it's Hamius, whether it's Verbata, whether it's Ryan Miller, whether it's more recently the, the Toffoli, Edler, Tanev class, right? I mean, that was something that this club, it's still something that this club cannot afford to have happen repeatedly for a team that's not close to contending. And that's sort of a big question that'll be hanging over this season with, or this upcoming season with JT Miller. But the Mott trade was a signal anyway that this club understood where they were at in a different way than perhaps they had in the past. So I'm telling the story of our first year just because I want to, I want to get to, I want to get to my, my final take. I want to sign off. We're going to open the mailbag for the rest of the segment. And for the second segment, I'm alone for the first hour. Pick Nazar is going to join me for hour two, but I'm alone for the first hour. And I want to, I want to run through to get to my sort of fully fleshed out takes on what we've seen from the Canucks this off season. I want to run through the story of our first year and, and sort of sign off on this note. So in the wake of the trade deadline, the Canucks find a way to tread water. They're in the playoff mix in terms of like the equation for way longer than anyone expected, right? They win those seven straight games right when it looked like it was midnight at the start of April. Clock sort of just can't quite tick 12 on their playoff chances. Really, it's until the last week of the season, they're in the mix, but never really in the mix. You know, they, they were never a team that had more than a 20% or a long shot odds. They never had more than that, but they kept themselves alive. They kept their nose above water just long enough to keep it exciting through 80 games. And credit to them, because with how they started the first 25 games, it was it was sort of ugly. To get to where they got, though, and this is something we've debated throughout the summer, is that signal or is that noise? Is that something this team can sustain or not, right? Management said after the season, and didn't just say it, but also telegraphed it with their actions, that they weren't in any way convinced that their mind was not changed by what they'd seen from this club over the latter 60 games. They decided not to extend Bruce Boudreau, uh, instead sort of playing a game of chicken with the beloved head Canucks head coach, who ultimately opted to remain in Vancouver with the decision coming suspiciously close to the heels of the Islanders firing Barry Trotz, who of course hails from Vernon, British Columbia, and that's another storyline to track this upcoming season. In Boudreaux's case, right, he comes in and he obviously, obviously changed the vibes entirely around this club. This hockey club was unrecognizable in terms of how they carried themselves, of how the players looked engaged day to day, and most importantly, the vibes in the arena, right? They went from being completely toxic to fans singing off losing teams with a chant of Bruce, there it is. The way that Boudreaux connected with this market, I, I think it's fair to say you haven't seen it in a generation. Probably no coach of the Canucks has connected and resonated with fans in this market the way Boudreaux did since Pat Quinn. I, I mean, I think you, you could say since Pat Quinn. You could maybe even say that that Quinn sort of resonated in a different way because he was a, a credible hand, a, a hockey leadership sort of figure as opposed to 
you know, uh, the coach. In, he was coach GM, but it took him two years to get there and on and on. The way that fans reacted to him in the wake of the Stan McCammon or uh, the McCammon firing. Uh, sorry, Stan McCammon was uh, Bob McCammon. Was different than the way that fans immediately embraced Boudreaux. So you could even make the argument that no one has ever resonated right off the bat with this fan base the way that Boudreaux has. Are the Canucks the team that we saw in the latter 60 games, right? It's not a question that I expected to matter this much at this stage of the offseason. But, but, the club did not make the changes that we've been discussing, that we've been expecting, that the industry has been expecting for months since Jim Rutherford came over. Jim Rutherford averaged a trade a month during his tenure with the Pittsburgh Penguins. And to this point, just as a reminder that, in fact, Patrick Alvine, who, who's far more patient, I think, is the general manager of this club, the Canucks have behaved conservatively, conventionally, right? Brock Besser was locked up with a three-year deal, a, a savvy compromise. Spencer Martin was signed. The club re-upped Jack Rathbone on a two-year deal. They signed a bunch of two-way guys for Abbotsford. They are not it looks like spending quite as much on the farm as they did last year in the Abbotsford Canucks' inaugural season, although there's still time to flesh that out and still a ton of talent available. They drafted a player that they were very happy to see fall to them at 15. How many times have you heard that? But in this case, it's really true. In Jonathan Lecker-Mackey. And the rest of the draft sort of unfolded in a way that, you know, looked like the classes that they mined in 2020 and 2021 jury is still very much out. Color me a little bit skeptical. Didn't love their process after the first round. Then free agency opens and they sign Ilya Mikhaev, Curtis Lazar, and then some other sort of depth guys committing almost $6 million in salary for the long term, seven years of term, almost 6 million combined on a pair of forwards who played bottom six minutes for playoff teams last year. Which brings us to right now, you know, now the conversation, is this team the team that they were in the latter 60 games? If you upgrade Lamico and Matthew Highmore with Ilya Mikhaev and Curtis Lazar, not insignificant upgrades, by the way, <laughs> there's a pretty significant distance from Matthew Highmore to Ilya Mikhaev. Is this team a playoff team? Is this team more than the 92 point team they were last season? Well, perhaps, perhaps, but a lot went right for that Canucks team last year, right? I mean, just just think about this one barometer of good hockey fortune. The Canucks' third goaltender, right, went 6-3. and three. <laughs> Or sorry, one, one, played nine games. They won six of those games. Um, I think they got points in most of the rest of them, right? I think it was nine of a possible 12 points. So sorry, it was six games he played, three and three. But they got points in the three games that, they, that Spencer Martin lost. So they get nine of a possible 12 points with their third goaltender in net, who goes 960. <laughs> you can't count on that happening every year. Most teams get blown out when their third goaltender comes in the Canucks. And, and you know, credit Curtis Sanford, who's, of course, part of the organization. Credit Ian Clark with this. It's not all coincidence. But the Canucks legitimately acquired Spencer Martin for a bag of pucks ahead of the or just after the expansion draft last offseason. Comes in and gets nine of a possible 12 points with a 960 save percentage as a third goaltender. I mean, this is the sort of thing where you look at and say, hey, I'm not sure. I'm not sure 
if that that bounce is going the Canucks way again. Uh, you look at sort of the on-ice shooting percentage. You look at the fact that the team was number one in save percentage at five-on-five. Five. You look at the conversion rate on the power play, particularly in the second half. There, There's a lot of noise here, a lot of things that make me a little bit nervous in terms of can the Canucks sustain this? You know, especially because the baseline of this team outshoots and outchances their opponent on a regular basis wasn't there. Like, that that part was absent. The Canucks were still super reliant on a bevy of one-shot scorers and their goaltender. And now they haven't made changes. And they're bringing the same blue line back, except one year older, which is going to make it even harder to lean on Tyler Myers and Oliver ekman Larson the way they did last year. You're counting on a guy like Travis Dermott, a guy like Jack Rathbone, a guy like Luke Shen to play a fourth, you know, a top four role again for you this season. You are counting on these players to play almost across the board, like with the exception of Quinn Hughes, at a level above which they can probably sustain, like sustain high-end performance. And that, to me, remains the biggest concern in a division where your competitors have the likes of Shea Theodore and... Alex Pietrangelo, Rasmus Anderson, Chris Tanev, Noah Hannafin, um, you know, Darnell Nurse. Uh, the the LA Kings go nine deep. <laughs> I mean, Sean Dursey's maybe their fourth best right-handed defenseman. <laughs> and he was a breakout star last year. Uh, Mikey Anderson, you know, on and on. I mean, I'm not even listing Drew Doughty. Can the Canucks make the playoffs with this defense group? Their forwards are deep. They're deeper than ever. On paper, you love the mix. In goal, you obviously love what Vancouver has. Thatcher Demko is a special player. Is this defense at a level where it won't hold back everything else that Vancouver is trying to accomplish? That's that's sort of the question that we're at. And how do you fix it? And how do you fix it? And this is sort of where you'll be shocked to hear this. I get a little bit nervous about what we've seen from the Canucks' new front office. Now, Jim Rutherford, who's at the head of this, is the president of hockey operations. Patrick Alvin, they've inherited a mess, an absolute mess. Very few players on this team are tradable with significant value, right? Like, they're not returning stuff in trades. We live in a world where Max Pacioretty, point per game the last two seasons, albeit with some injury issues, cost Vegas cost Vegas, who was trading him to Carolina, an additional 24-year-old defenseman who happens to be right-handed and pretty good just to get off of his deal, right? It's not like the Carolina Hurricanes acquired Max Pacioretty. They got paid to take him. (laughs) That's the environment in which we live. Ryan McDonough was free to the Nashville Predators. Free. In a world where Ryan McDonough is free, what do you think Tyler Myers' trade value is? I mean, this isn't rocket science. This isn't rocket science. This is hockey. You know? It's going to take some time for this management group to disassemble the roster. This team built a club for whom it had to work last season, and it didn't. And now they've kept that group together. And here's where I think the rubber really meets the road. By bringing in Mikhaev and committing $4.75 million times four, to a player who played a bottom six role for the Toronto Maple Leafs. The Canucks see him as a top six uh, forward next season. I'll be shocked. I'll be shocked if he holds down that role all year. He's obviously going get to a, get a chance. Teams always give a chance to the guys they bring in. But I don't know that he can play 
the type of East-West game that you need to play to really be effective with a JT Miller or an Elias Pettersson. I could see it working with Bo Horvat, but that's a sort of different type of North-South game. I still think if you, you're putting Horvat with Pearson and Mikhaev, there's just not enough creativity, particularly given that Horvat's best offensive skill is his finishing game, right? <laughs> so that, to me, is a, is a significant concern. Anyway, by committing that money to a bunch of bottom six forwards, you know, you limit your flexibility going forward. And that's tough because look up and down the Canucks lineup. Like, who's expiring that you're counting on? Okay, so you've got Holpe's $1.9 million buyout penalty expiring. You've got Halak's $1.25 million overage expiring. Great. Okay, that's it. You've got Dermot expiring. I mean, that's only $1.5 million. There's no big contract that's expiring except for the contracts that are signed by uh, that are attached to Bo Horvat and JT Miller. Well, those aren't players who expire and you're like, oh, good. You can reallocate that money. Those are players that expire and they become more expensive. And clearly players that the club would prefer to keep. Clearly. Canucks are going to end up going into next summer, assuming they make no changes to this roster, with something like $20 million in cap space, $23 million in cap space. Well, if Horvat's a $7.5 million player on his next deal, and JT Miller's an $8 million player, conservative estimates both, by the way, that's 15 and a half combined, right? Which leaves you with something like seven and a half to $8 million with Kuzmenko, Hoaglander, and Dermot all expiring. Now, can you get Kuzmenko, Hoaglander, and Dermot done at $8 million? Sure. But not if this season goes the way you want it to go, right? I mean, <laughs> if the Canucks are going to be a playoff team next year, then JT Miller is going to have the type of season where keeping him requires you to pay eight and a half, eight million. No question about it, right? You're not making the playoffs if JT Miller is a 70 point guy. You need him to be a 95, a point per game plus player if this team's going to make the playoffs. Same story with Bo Horvat. You also need at least one of Kuzmenko or Hoaglander to be 45 plus point guys, surely, right? Surely one of those guys needs to be crushing it for you in a middle six role crushing it like at a very high level so that means at least one of them at least one of them you you want to cost four million next season on their on their on their second contracts and of course Kuzmenko will be a UFA same same story with Dermot right is there a world where the Canucks are a playoff team in which Travis Dermot doesn't play at a high level for at least 20 games in a top four role he'll be arbitration eligible he'll be an everyday defender probably play the right side a little bit, probably play the left side a bit. No, there's not. Like, there's not. So the Mikhaev deal, like, even if you believe in this group, the Mikhaev deal makes it difficult to keep it together, right? If you if you are concerned about the Mikhaev contract at all, then, then what they've done effectively is by doubling down on their forward group, they've limited the cash that's going to be available to surround this core group with a contender-quality defensive group like there's no way to fix this defense without cap space there's just no way zero percent chance you cannot you cannot considering the commitments to some of these players especially Oliver Ekman Larson you cannot upgrade this defensive group without making sacrifices elsewhere on the roster and for the Canucks it's up front in in the top six in particular on the wing in particular where too much money is allocated even though those players are really good players JT Miller is a great player Connor Garland's a great player you can't have all of that money committed into your top six wings 
when you're trying to dramatically reconstruct a blue line group that pays three defenders like they're one A defenders, right? Hughes is seven and a half plus. Ekman Larson, 7.26. Myers, six. Those are all top 30 contracts for NHL defensemen, right? This group, this group is a top 10 most highly paid defensive group in the NHL, and they're bottom five in true talent. And that's even with Quinn Hughes, who's electric, become underrated in league-wide terms simply because of what McCarr's done, right? Fact is, is that Quinn Hughes is a very, very special player. That task ahead is Herculean. And my concern with where we sit at this point in the Canucks offseason, right, is that the organization may not have understood the importance of preserving cap flexibility in addressing it, right? I'm worried that there's a extent to which the club has overvalued their own ability to find deals, right? And I just don't know, like you can be the greatest salesman ever. You can be the greatest deal maker ever. You can be the best social butterfly at the GM party or at the draft on the draft floor. You can have the most connections, the deepest Rolodex, the most experience ever. At the end of the day, in this league right now, with the flat cap being so decisive in explaining player movement, it almost doesn't matter if you're positioned poorly. Right? Like it almost doesn't matter if you don't have the cap flexibility. If you can't take money back, if you can't lubricate deals in that manner, you're just kind of up a creek without a paddle. You know, this group deserves some patience. They deserve some patience to figure it out. It's going to take a while. I don't know if you remember this, but Jim Rutherford's first season in Pittsburgh didn't go well, right? Team limped into the playoffs as the eighth seed, and they got stomped, eliminated 4-1 by the New York Rangers, right? The James Neal-Patrick Hornquist trade looked like a decisive loss for the Penguins, looked like a stroke of genius from David Poyle. It didn't look good, right? The Mike Johnston hire, the the coach in Pittsburgh, it didn't work, right? Like, that was a wasted season. 14-15 was a bad season for the Pittsburgh Penguins. And yet, that summer... Right, Some contracts expired, Paul Martin expired, the club began to make some really savvy moves to flesh out that blue line group, Right, the Airhoff was traded, they, they found some ways to build in some depth, and then they executed a really smart maneuver, trading Brandon Sutter to the Vancouver Canucks for Nick Bonino, who cost a third as much, and then using the vacated cap space as well to sign Eric Fear, and all of a sudden, instead of having one expensive third-line center. They had a cheap third-line center who happened to fit better with them and also, uh, you know, an additional depth piece. Uh, The Kessel trade came in on and on, right? It was the second summer for Rutherford and Pittsburgh that the team began to cook with gas. The first one was actually, you know, if not a disaster next to it, right? (laughs) A really bad season by the Pittsburgh Penguins standards. So things can change quickly. This wasn't going to be solved in a day. This management group deserves patience, but it's fair considering how this year has unfolded, how our first season at the Canucks Hour has transpired. It's fair to look at where the club is positioned, look at the decisions that they've made, look at the conservatism, the conventional approach that has led them to today. Understanding that this isn't a finished product, understanding that there's still opportunities to change things up, clear space. 
I guess. It's going to be hard. Understanding all of that, with all of those qualifiers in mind, I think it's fair to look at the body of work to this point and say, this isn't going to get it done. This isn't enough. This isn't enough change. This isn't enough flexibility. They have not created the avenues they need to improve as quickly as they need to. If they're going to make noise of any kind, in Elias Pettersson, Quinn Hughes, Bo Horvat, Thatcher Demko's prime years. That's my concern. And that's my sort of big final, here's where we're at take as we're signing off on the Canucks Hour. Sportsnet 650, it's our last show. We'll be back. We'll take your questions on the other side of the break at Sportsnet 650. In this house, a star is born. Hughes down the boards, has to spin back to the corner, now works into the high slot, and shoots, he scores! Quinn Hughes in overtime! Hello, and welcome back to segment two of the Canucks Hour. This is going to be our summer mailbag segment. After my soliloquy, right? <laughs> Break the fourth wall and, and drop all my takes. Make sure to make sure to choose violence and leave with a highly pessimistic take about the Canucks offseason so far. That was segment one. Segment two, we're going to open up the mailbag. So text in, use the Dunbar Lumber, yes, text line 650-650, and I will get to as many questions as I can. You can also at me on Twitter at Thomas Drance. I will be fielding questions from there as well, and I'm actually going to start with Twitter because about a half hour before the show, I put out the call. Some of our listeners responded there, and I'm going to take a question from there to begin. It's from C. Trahar on Twitter. And he asks, my question, do you think there's value in having Niels Hoaglander start the season on the club's fourth line? Or do you see him as a top nine or bust type of player? Thanks. I love this question because people underrate the fourth line as a, as a place to develop, right? And in Niels Hoaglander's case, because this club cut budget to such a dramatic extent right before his first NHL season. He came in and, you know, the Canucks were thinking about their second line in the wake of the Toffoli departure. And, and the candidates were Louis Erickson, Jake Vertanen, or this rookie guy, maybe. Hey, let's see what he can do. Well, they saw what Ho- Hoaglander can do, and it turns out that Hoaglander can do a lot. Hoaglander's fast. He works like crazy, right? Like he has a motor. A true motor. Wins a lot of battles along the wall. Drives drives offense offensive events. Like, he's a high event player. <laughs> More happens with Hoaglander on the ice both ways. Which isn't always good because there's uh, some issues with being a high event player if you as you move higher and higher up a lineup, right? Against the best players in the world, in a matchup role, you don't want to be a high event player necessarily. You want to control play. You want to be generating... Six chances to every four that your opponents generate. Like, that's how you win. But a high event player in a bottom six role is actually, uh, you know, can be a weapon. Can be a weapon of sorts. So, after a dynamic rookie season, right? Hoaglander was the leading scorer for the Canucks 5-on-5. You know, he didn't have a great sophomore year. Not unusual, right? The sophomore slump is a thing for a reason. And in Hoaglander's case... We saw last season he dropped a little bit down the lineup. He didn't seem to have Bruce Boudreaux's affection the way he perhaps did uh, of Travis Green's. And his usage declined, his production declined. It wasn't a great year for Hoaglander. Now, the Canucks are coming in to this season, and you can definitely find nine nine names to put ahead of him in the lineup, right? Uh, 
obviously the three centermen. That's obvious. Miller, Horvat, Patterson, Besser, Pearson, Garland, right? I mean, we're not we're not debating that those guys should be a little bit higher up the lineup than Hoaglander. And then you get to, you know, Kuzmenko, Pod Colson, right? You'd think, considering the pitch to to Kuzmenko, that he will play further up the lineup than Hoaglander, at least to start. Pod Colson outperformed Hoaglander last season, earned a level of trust from Boudreaux that Hoaglander didn't. And so you would expect, likewise, Pod Colson to be a little higher up the lineup, particularly because Hoagland, or sorry, Pod Colson's defensive awareness at this point in his career is at a higher level, frankly, right? Just straight up than Hoaglander's is. So there's a real possibility that Hoaglander starts the year on a fourth line. And I'm not worried about that at all. I think the fourth line, like, Hoaglander's going into his third NHL season, but I think we have to consider that in a healthy situation, he might have spent time in the American League in the first two years of his entry-level deal. In fact, almost certainly would have, right? He wouldn't have been a top-six forward right off the bat on a team that was well-constructed or deep enough to play him where he should have played, which would have been on the fourth line probably to start, or in the American League playing major minutes and putting up major points. The team almost, and Hoaglander's not the only case for whom this is true, the team almost has to start from scratch with some of their young players and take a different approach to player development. We've seen this management group invest heavily in this area. You know, if Hoaglander's playing with a Curtis Lazar and, you know, let's just say Hoaglander's on the right side and it's Jason Dickinson, they're hoping for a Dickinson bounce back and that's your fourth line, and they're actually playing eight to 12 minutes a night, right? They're actually being deployed in a more balanced fashion, which is for sure what this organization wants to do. I don't think that's a bad spot for him. Like, I don't think that's a negative. I don't think that's a problem at all. Um, For me, when you combine Curtis Lazar's forechecking ability, Jason Dickinson's hypothetical, because we didn't see it in his first Canucks year, but hypothetical defensive awareness and defensive value, and then add... Niels Hoaglander's sort of dynamic water bug, fire hydrant along the wall game, you know, that could be a pretty productive fourth line. That could be an interesting spot for him to be in to rebuild his confidence. And and look, you never get to play your lineup on white on a whiteboard. Sometimes ever in over the course of a full season. Injuries happen, guys have to move up and down, uh slumps happen, you have to change the lineup, right? Like It's not like if you start him there, that's where he's going to finish. But if he can start there and get 10 games like that, rebuild his confidence, be a little bit productive, chip in some supporting offense. I think that's a really good spot for Niels Hoaglander to be in. I think that's a great place for the Canucks to begin to get him back on track after a disappointing second year. So there's our there's our um, there's our first question. We'll we'll take as many as you as we can get to. In this segment, 650-650, that's the Dunbar Lumber text line. All right. I had one question which said, how do you feel about taking a step back this season to take a few forward in 2023 and 2024 and 2024, 2025? This team is kind of stuck with what they have, excluding a Miller trade. You know, I think the fact is, is that this club's likely to take a step back anyway, right? And I know... Fans don't like to hear it, and in the last segment, I got a lot of pushback to the idea of the Canucks being a bottom five defense group. I I still believe it. I don't know what to tell you. Um, And then also, you know, things like, well, they almost made the playoffs with Chase on on Miller's line. 
Jason's pretty good, by the way. <laughs> Jason's a good player. He might not be the fastest skater. He might not be what this team wants now at this moment in time in terms of, you know, upping their their speed quotient or the balance of their lineup. But like Jason's a productive, he's a bona fide NHL player. That's real depth. That's a real depth piece. And, you know, for sure, he played well on Miller's line. But look, we know this. Like, we have to know this. In the latter 60 games of the season, the Canucks got, you know, Elias Pettersson scoring at a 45-goal pace, JT Miller uh, producing at an elite rate, almost the best player in the league points production-wise in the last 60 games. Um, You know, Tanner Pearson was back to being like a 50-point guy. Uh, Connor Garland had the same 5-on-5 point rate as Connor McDavid. (laughs) I mean, you go down the list, it was like everybody was absolutely crushing it. The percentages were definitely in their favor and the percentages in net in particular. Like one thing that I hear a lot, well, look at their goals against. Look at their goals against. They're bottom 10 in goals against. Okay, they were number one in five on five save percentage. And again, it's one thing to get an elite performance over 60 games from Thatcher Demko. I believe that you're going to get elite performance from Thatcher Demko over 60 games. It's another to get 960 goaltending over nine games, or sorry, six games, from your third stringer, right? Like, that's what doesn't happen. Teams do not repeat as the best five-on-five save percentage team year after year. It doesn't matter if you employ Tim Thomas and Tukarask. It doesn't matter if you employ Roberto Luongo and Corey Schneider. It doesn't matter if you have Markstrom and Demko as your tandem. Like, it doesn't matter. Number one. In five-on-five save percentage is not something that teams do again and again and again. It's just there's too much variance in the NHL. With shooters that are this good, with goaltenders that are this good, there's too much year-over-year variance for a team to be that again. Well, if this team is just top 10 by five-on-five save percentage last season, like they're 100% going to be a below-average team in terms of their defensive results. There's a difference between quality defensive play and quality goaltending, right? I even had one texter say, oh, look at uh, look at... Spencer, look at Spencer Martin's. The fact that Spencer Martin came in and had 960, that's a credit to the defensive group. Did you watch those games? Did you watch like that game against the Winnipeg Jets that they won 2-1 with Spencer Martin making 43 saves? Like those were not team defensive wins with Spencer Martin just being like, uh, you know, Cam Talbot back there, just giving you what you deserved. Like Spencer Martin was outrageous, outrageous. He was so good that he's earned the first one-way contract of his career and the first chance to ever be an everyday NHL-level backup. Like, stop it. Stop it. You have to be able to watch this team and understand that the chances being surrendered are of, of a high quality and, and are happening far too frequently. You have to be able to know that. Anyway, um, bonafide NHL players don't sign PTOs every year. Some pushback I'm getting on Chase on. Yeah, but if you always get the contract, <laughs> if you always get the contract, then then you do. You know, the fact is, is that Chason's ability to hang around in this league is proof of his NHL capability, right? It's not that he, it's not that he's, you know, sure, he's on the fringes of the league in, in the flat cap era. I mean, for sure. Everyone is. Everyone is. Again, we live in a world where there's only like four or five t- players on any team that aren't available for free. For free. In fact, you can get paid to take most of these guys. That's that's how the league works these days. That Chason always signs PTOs and gets the contract is a compliment to him. All right. So why are you saying Miller and Horvat need to be point-per-game players to make the playoffs? Well, I didn't say that about Horvat. I said it about Miller. He needs to be point-per-game plus. 
the forward group got dramatically better. Young players like Pods, Hughes, and Petey should take steps as well. Okay, maybe, maybe. I mean, we just saw with Niels Hoaglander, right, that you can have a dr fantastic rookie year and not necessarily follow it up by continuing to improve in your second season. So, you know, we'll see. We'll see what Vasily Podkolzin can do. I believe in Vasily Podkolzin. I hear nothing but high-end praise for his work rate out of the Canucks, like from his teammates, from the coaching staff, even from administrators, right? Like even dating back to the way that he handled his immigration issues last summer, right? Where it was like, oh, you know, you should probably get vaccinated. Like the next day he flies to Estonia or something and gets the J&J &J shot, right? Like he, he was on it. He wants this. This, is, this matters to him. And he works like crazy. And you see it. You see the motor every time he steps on the ice. I believe in Vasily Podkolzin. But it's not enough to assume that he's going to be a top six quality player next year. Like, he wasn't a top six quality player this last year on the whole. It would be a big step for him to be at that level next year. And we've seen that development isn't always linear. I mean, think about Quinn Hughes' second season in 2021, right? He took a step back after being one of the best defensemen in hockey as a rookie. And then he bounced back again this year, right? Elias Pettersson, in his first two years, was looked like a top 10 centerman in the game. and then. In, you know, 20-ish games in 2021, and for the first half of this year, for about a 40-game stretch, Elias Pettersson looked more than human. It, people were concerned. Do you not remember the conversation in November about, about Elias Pettersson? You know, I believe in Pettersson too, right? I believe in Quinn Hughes. I love, I, I actually rate all these young players as being special, special talents. I'd love to see them surrounded by a better defense group. <laughs> but... We've already seen it. Like, just think about the three names you listed. Pod Colson, Hughes, Pedersen. Like, think about Pedersen and Hughes and the and the and Hoaglander and the and the circuitous path they've taken already in their young careers. Like, how can you just assume that all young players are going to continue to improve in a linear fashion, considering what you've just seen out of all these guys? You know, I'm I'm not trying to be negative here. I'm just I'm the guy who's watched and been around this game enough to know that it takes some time. Like, it takes some time. These guys need some patience. If you're counting on all of the young players to hit all at once, if you're counting on everyone to repeat their great season last year, like, if you're counting on that stuff, you're lost. You're lost. You know, hope is not a strategy, right? Hope is not a strategy. You can't just hope that everything's going to go your way. It might. It's hockey. I don't think the Canucks are dead in the water, by the way, right? I would sort of rate them as like 40 to 45% likely to make the playoffs. So less likely, more likely in my opinion, that they'll miss it based on how their roster is constructed as of today. But 40% is almost a coin flip. It's like a slightly weighted coin flip against you. Well, I mean, you have a shot. There's there's a couple things that could go right for this team. They could be there. Do you think a full season with Boudreaux will help? I do. Because obviously based on how they played with him once he took over, they were looking like a playoff team for a while. They obviously fell short, but... I do. He did phenomenal work. And yet, you know, like losing Brad Shaw, I think is tough, especially with how well the penalty kill performed once Shaw took it over in the latter 25 games of the season. Right. Um, if you look at the five on five metrics, the club generated more under Boudreaux, which mattered, but they also gave up more. Right. They, they didn't improve massively in terms of their ability to control play five on five. Like Boudreaux's biggest impact was to restore a sense of belief, positivity, change the vibes around the team and the fan base. That, that was huge. 
and this team needed it. But in terms of his sustainable impact on the way the team performed, you know, the penalty kill improved massively once they started trying new things with with Walker and Shaw. I think getting some of those young guys involved was so long overdue and necessary. That was sort of the one area where you'd look at and say, hey, you know, sustainably, that was a marked improvement and a, and a phenomenal accomplishment. Five on five, you know, they stopped trying to break out with control. They started generating uh, more, but they also started surrendering more. Really what happened for me at five on five anyway, was that all of a sudden you started getting those great individual contributions from guys like Miller and like Petters and Pedersen and Besser who weren't productive in the first 25 games of the year. Um, that to me is, you know, this is based on the underlying numbers. This is based on how I look at the game. Like the five on five impact was minimal. It was really just that their top players and, and Boudreaux probably deserves credit for unlocking some of it, but also Pedersen wasn't going to look the way he did in the first 25 games for over 82. Like that was never going to happen. So some of it's regression, some of it's in, in any event, there's, there's nothing in the five on five profile isolated to just the Boudreaux games that makes me say that team's ready to take a step. It's not like the Calgary flames in Daryl Sutter's last, you know, 20 games of the 2021 season where, where you could see the shape of an emergent juggernaut, you know, um, like emerging from the sea, like the Green Rangers Zord, right? Like it, it's. I like that reference. By yeah, the way. it it wasn't like a do 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 do, and like the Canucks <laughs> are just all of a sudden a, a massive imposing juggernaut. Yeah, the record looks that way. The record looks that way, but the form doesn't. The form doesn't. That's why I mean, but like that's why management's talked about this group the way they've talked about this group. We didn't see enough the the breakouts. We didn't like the way we played. Right? I mean. We, we won as individuals. We want a more balanced team. Like, th- th- those aren't my words. That's Jim Rutherford, right? Yeah. Th- that's Patrick Alvin. Um, the club knows this. Like, they know this. We know from their critical commentary about how the club played that they're not necessarily banking on this club being a 106-point team because of the Boudreaux effect sustainably next season. Like, they see what I see at 5-on-5. Five five. What are the odds they shore their right hand D up by the time the season starts? Is that at all a possibility, or are they kind of stuck with this group for now? Do you think? I think it's going to be really tough because that's their biggest flaw for me right now. Well, like, and that's what I'm most worried about is the the decor, especially on the right side. Uh, well, I think you're going to see guys like Ekman Larson and, and Travis Dermott help out there, mm-hmm. right? And, and I mean, I think that's going to be the only way. You look at the right side, especially if Tucker Pullman's not healthy and ready to go, which. The organization's optimistic about, his camp is optimistic about. I'm hopeful for a guy who, uh, you know, I haven't had a chance to really get to know him, but again, by all accounts, a lovely human being, right? You hope that he's able to resume his career, but if he's not, if he's not ready to go at the start of the year or if there is a re-injury concern, um, which when you have the sort of repetitive um, symptoms lingering from head injuries, right? I mean, that's not something I think you can... Yeah. Be the, you, you can't pencil a guy, given the way his season ended, into the lineup just a priori, right? You have to be a little bit restrained, conservative, price some uncertainty into your evaluation of that player. If he's not there, you know, Myers, I think, was far too overused last season. Yeah, right? well, that's like, always been his issue, right? Like, way too many minutes. Well, and, and Myers misunderstood, in my opinion, like, the analytics crowd tends to regard him as, like, replacement level, like, really bad. Um. I don't. He looked good under Boudreaux, especially at the start there. Like, there was a period of time, I think the first two weeks when Boudreaux took over, I was like, 
who is this Tyler Myers I'm seeing right now? This well, is great. Tyler Myers <laughs> has runs like that. Tyler, yeah, Tyler yeah. at the end of the day, at the end of the day, if you're consistently being played as a top four guy in this league, right? There's a reason for it. You know, you might not like Paul Maurice as a coach. You might not like Travis Green as a coach. You might not like Bruce Boudreaux as a coach. I don't know why, but you might not like Bruce Boudreaux as a coach. But if all of them agree that, <laughs> that Tyler Myers is a top four defenseman, that's a pretty compelling data point that Tyler Myers is a top four defenseman, right? The contract's pro- inefficient, don't get me wrong. But Tyler Myers, at the end of the day, can play major minutes for a team, even a not very good team, and not kill them against top competition. He doesn't kill you against top competition. Well, there's real value in that. Probably like $4 million in, in value, uh, $4 million in value from just that, from just that ability. Can play first pair of minutes isn't the reason your team loses. Mm-hmm. That's the bar for like a $4 million top lineup defenseman. Myers crosses it for me, right? At the end of the day, at the end of the day, no matter what, no matter what the all-in-one RAPM chart you see on Twitter says about his defensive game, like, yeah, his, he's mo- not as good defensively as he is offensively, right? There are moments, especially when he's playing minute 22 of the game, where, where he'll do something in the, the defensive end, and you're like, oh boy, what was that? If you could get him, though, to 17 minutes, yeah, that would be a huge boon for this club. The, the problem is when you get into those you know 20-plus five-on-five minutes for him, uh, that, to me is where this club sort of struggled. And and look, we saw it too with Ekman Larson, right? If you think about that homestand where their playoff hopes really evaporated, right? The losses to Detroit and Calgary, on and on. Ekman Larson didn't look like himself for like a stretch of three weeks that just murdered the team. And that's, by the way, not on the 30-year-old defenseman who, you know, aside from that three-week stretch was one of the best defensive defenders in the sport last year, right? Like, you can't be using him at his age that much. You need to find a way to prescribe his minutes to keep him fresh, especially if you want to go into the playoffs. Uh, that's my that's my view. So, I like this. M- Myers is the R.A. Dickey of defensemen. There's massive value of average performance from a massive minute eater. Exactly. Exactly. But but what can you get from him if you're no longer relying on him to be a massive minutes eater, right? Like, are are you even better off if if he's playing 17 minutes a night, if he's being used as the sort of 3-4 that he is? All right, here's another question. Actually, most people aren't questions. They're just, they're just mad at me. <laughs> um, Brendan Nanaimo asks, well, you're hoping Calgary is still a strong team without Gaudreau and Kachuk. Where is the proof of that? Well, look. If you think there's any chance that the Canucks aren't done, we know that Calgary's not done, right? What does the Kachuk return look like, right? How much cap space do they net in that transaction? If Kachuk goes to St. Louis for Tarasenko and Cairo, <laughs> how much I, the Calgary Flames are still going to be a contender for the top team in the Pacific, right? If he goes to Florida for Mackenzie Weger and Carter Verhage. The Calgary Flames are still going to be a contender for the top team in the Pacific. So, yeah, subtract Gaudreau and Kachuk, and the Flames look like they're a team that's, you know, only going to be in the playoff mix, not necessarily very good. They're still going to be a top-end defensive team. They still have a Vezina nominee in net, one of the best top fours in the league, probably the second-best top four in the West, and, you know, a level of defensive skill down the center of their forward ranks that... Certainly, the Canucks can't even come close to matching, right? I mean, the Canucks do not have a defensive pivot like Mikhail Backlund. They do not have a defensive pivot like Elias Lindholm. Period. Period. 
And and look, are Gaudreau and Kachuk insurmountable losses? Yes. Do the Calgary Flames still have Tyler Toffoli and a 35-goal scorer and Andrew Mangiapane on the roster? Also, yes, right? Plus whatever Kachuk returns to them. Plus whatever they use their cap space for, right? It's not that I'm counting Calgary ahead of Vancouver without seeing what else they do, but it's not going to be as complicated as it feels for them to emerge next season as a better team than the Canucks are. And and that, again, speaks to some of the structural issues that we've talked about. At the end of the day, Calgary is actually reasonably well-positioned to manage absolute gut-punch departures from two elite top-line players. Two elite top-line players. Why? Depth. Structure. Right? That's why. They play so well at 5-on-5. They prevent chances to such an extreme level that they can plug and play, probably. In my view, they're positioned anyway to find some interesting options to plug and play. The Canucks don't control play that well at 5-on-5. There's not enough depth here. They're too reliant on just their goaltender as opposed to preventing chances against and on the high-level contributions of a, a select small group of top top offensive producers. So can they afford to lose a JT Miller? No, right? No, it's a totally different dynamic. I prefer the team where you've got some margin, right? I don't view hope as a strategy. <laughs> I view structure as one. I view, I view probabilities as one. I view the team that controls 60% uh, or 55 plus percent of shot attempts and scoring chances at five on five as a team with some margin, some margin. And I view a team like the Canucks that are at more like 49%, 48% as a team with none. That's just it. It's, it's, I'm not trying to be negative, just how I see it. We're going to go to break. On the other side, I'm going to be joined by Bick Nazar. We'll get into more of a conversation. Perhaps he'll take me to task with his positive takes about the Canucks. Who knows? Thank you for participating. Thank you for asking me questions. I think we'll get to more, too, in, in either the third or the fourth segment once Bick is here. Anyway, thank you. Thank you for listening all year. We're about to welcome Bick in. You're listening to the Canucks Hour on Sportsnet 650.